If you turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 23, it's uh, page 394 in the church Bibles, or if you've got one of the larger ones, page 608. And as we come to chapter 23, we're going to find ourselves right in the middle of a situation that started in chapter 22. So let's take a moment to remind ourselves what that situation is before we read. Last week, we met Josiah, king of Judah. And we saw that he grew up in a time when the word of God had been lost. Josiah's grandfather Manasseh had intentionally forgotten God's word and he had lived his life, the majority of his life, in defiance of God's word. Josiah's father Ammon had followed completely the ways of Manasseh and so Josiah, it seems, grew up unaware of God's commands given through Moses. But when he was 26 years old, Josiah undertook a renovation of the temple in Jerusalem. And while that work was going on, the book of the law was found. Hilkiah the priest handed it over. It was read to King Josiah. And Josiah responded to God's word by tearing his robes. As he heard God's standards being read to him, he realized just how far short he fell. And how far far short the people of Judah fell. Josiah realized their sin and evil was causing the Lord's anger to burn against them. He realized Judah is in line for judgment. And he sent his officials to the prophetess Huldah to see what message she might have from the Lord. Josiah wanted to know, where do we stand? Is there any hope? What can we do? And Huldah delivered the word of the Lord. She said, judgment is coming on Judah. But you, Josiah, will be spared that judgment because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord. Because of that, you will not live through the judgment that's coming. You will be buried in peace, meaning you'll be gone before the land is laid waste and the people are taken away into exile. Although it doesn't say anything about the way Josiah will die, she says he will die before God's judgment falls on Judah. He won't live to see the disaster that's coming. And chapter 22 ended with these words, So they, that's Josiah's officials, took her answer back to the king. And now we're going to pick up in chapter 23, verse 1. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 to 30. But to begin with, we're just going to read verses 1 to 25. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing, All the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord. To follow the Lord 
and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. The king ordered Hilkiah the high priest, the priests next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem. Those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and moon, to the constellations and to all the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes that were in the temple of the Lord. The quarters where women did weaving for Asherah. Josiah brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the high places. From Geba to Beersheba, where the priests had burned incense. He broke down the gateway at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the city governor, which was on the left of the city gate. Although that priests of the high places did not serve at the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, they ate unleavened bread with their fellow priests. He desecrated Topheth, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire to Molech. He removed from the entrance to the temple of the Lord the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were in the court near the room of an official named Nathan Melech. Josiah then burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. He pulled down the altars the kings of Judah had erected on the roof near the upper room of Ahaz and the altars Manasseh had built in the two courts of the temple of the Lord. He removed them from there, smashed them to pieces and threw the rubble into the Kidron Valley. The king also desecrated the high places that were east of Jerusalem and the south of the hill of corruption. The ones Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the vile god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the people of Ammon. Josiah smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles and covered the sites with human bones. Even the altar at Bethel, the high place made by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who had caused Israel to sin, even that altar and high place he demolished. He burned the high place and grinded it to powder and burned the Asherah pole also. Then Josiah looked around. And when he saw the tombs that were there on the hillside, he had the bones removed from them and burned on the altar to defile it in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by the man of God who foretold these things. The king asked, what is that tombstone I see? People of the city said, it marks the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and pronounced against this altar of Bethel the very things you have done to it. Leave it alone, he said. Don't let anyone disturb his bones. So they spared his bones and those of the prophet who had come from Samaria. Just as he had done at Bethel, Josiah removed all the shrines at the high places that the kings of Israel had built in the towns of Samaria and that had aroused the Lord's anger. Josiah slaughtered all the priests of those high places on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he went back to Jerusalem. The king gave this order to all the people. 
celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Neither in the days of the judges who had led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength, in accordance with all the law of Moses. This is God's word. And this passage is about reformation. The verses we've just read show us the greatest reformer. Last year, we celebrated 500 years since the reformation of the church in Europe under men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and William Tyndale. But over 2,000 years before those great reformers, King Josiah showed himself to be the greatest reformer. And what he does in this passage is all the more remarkable because of Hulda's message from the Lord. Remember, she had told Josiah, judgment is coming, but you'll be spared. If you remember back to how Josiah's great-grandfather Hezekiah reacted when he had a similar message from God, Hezekiah thought to himself, who cares what's going to happen to Judah? So long as there's peace and security in my lifetime. Here, Josiah could have taken a similar attitude. He could have thought, well, I've got my ticket out of the mess that's coming. So why should I care about the mess that's coming? Why should I bother about the state of Judah? What's in it for me if I give my energy to try to change Judah? Josiah could have reacted that way, but what he actually does is show remarkable commitment to reformation in Judah. And that commitment is the outward evidence of what God has already seen in Josiah's heart. Through Huldah, God said, I have seen your responsiveness to my word. And what Josiah does in this chapter is just the outward evidence of what's in his heart. When someone has a responsive heart, they work for reformation. They can't help it. The fact that they're not going to face judgment themselves, that doesn't make them complacent and self-satisfied. They work at reformation for the sake of God's honor and for the sake of those who are facing judgment. Those who love God work to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. They work to see evil reduced and good gaining ground. Those who have received mercy from God work to see others humble themselves before God and receive mercy. That's just what God's people do. They don't live with a smug grin on their face thinking, I'm okay and who cares about the rest? 
The Apostle Paul said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Because of his people. Paul's own people, the Jews, because they were headed for judgment. And Paul then poured out his life to see that situation change. It's what God's people do. And here we're given details about Josiah's reformation. In verses 1 to 3, he works to bring the nation back to God's word. God's word is the true standard. God's word is the fixed point. And so true reformation works to bring men and women and institutions in conformity with God's word. Reformation isn't just about changing things. It's about changing things in line with the true standard. And here verse 2 says, Josiah gathers all the people from the least to the greatest. He gathers them at the temple and then he reads aloud all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. Previously, it was called the book of the law. Here it's called the book of the covenant. It's the same book. But what's being emphasized here is these are not just commands. These are commands to be obeyed. A covenant is a solemn commitment. And so in verse 3, we're told, The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. This is where true reformation always begins. With a call and a commitment to go back to God's word. And when we looked at the Reformation in Europe in the 1500s, isn't that what we saw? Men like Luther and Calvin first began to study the Bible for themselves, and then they worked to unleash the Bible for the benefit of others. The first step was to get preachers preaching it. And then they translated the Bible into the common language of the people. Luther translated the Bible into everyday German. William Tyndale put it into everyday English. That word had been locked away in monasteries and academic libraries for generations. But those men made it available to everyone, even the plowboy at his plow in the field. That was William Tyndale's ambition, that his, his Bible would be for even the plowboy. And he achieved that. Those reformers shared Josiah's ambition that all the people from the least to the greatest would hear God's word and be reformed according to God's word. Any attempt at reformation that doesn't have that aim cannot be true reformation. If we're not clear on the true standard, what are we even trying to achieve? What other fixed point is there? What are we reforming towards if not the living and enduring word of God? That's why we have this statement in the front of our church update. It's there every month. It says, Pelsall Evangelical Church exists 
to glorify God by being faithful to his word. That is our first core commitment as a church. We have other commitments that are important, but this is the foundational commitment. Because the Bible is our only fixed point. If we're not concerned first and foremost with faithfulness to the Bible, then we can be no real help to anyone. Because we're not clear about the things that matter most. Where we came from, what went wrong, and God's remedy for what went wrong. So back in 2 Kings, having started with a renewed commitment to God's word, then Josiah gets to work in obedience to God's word. Starting from the temple in Jerusalem, he oversees a reformation across the whole country. And even, as we'll see, beyond the border of Judah. And if we wanted to sum up the gist of this work, we could call it Down with the Idols. That's the focus of Josiah's work. And it's a massive undertaking. There are generations worth of idols to be dealt with. And Josiah works at it systematically. Look at verse 5. He did away with the idolatrous priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem. Those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and moon, to the constellations and to all the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He grinded it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes that were in the temple of the Lord. The quarters where women did weaving for Asherah. Josiah brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the high places from Geba to Beersheba, where the priests had burned incense. In verse 7, weaving for Asherah apparently means weaving special robes to be used in the worship of Asherah. She was a female goddess. She'd been introduced by previous kings as a kind of wife for the Lord brought into his temple. Verse 8 mentions the high places. We've heard about these plenty of times before. They were alternative worship sites. They had been around for generations. Eventually, they were removed by Hezekiah. But then they were rebuilt by Hezekiah's son Manasseh. And as Josiah now removes them again, notice he doesn't just smash the idols and hand out P45s to the priests who work there. Notice what he does to try and make sure they're never rebuilt again. Verse 8 says, he desecrates the high places. And that word is used several times more in the passage. To desecrate something is to violate its sacred character. And idol worshippers considered these places to be sacred. So Josiah has the graves of idol worshippers dug up and he burns their bones on the altars. It's an attempt to shut down these high places for good. So no one will want to use them again. And then having worked his way around Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, Josiah actually crosses the border north into what used to be the northern kingdom of Israel. 
you look at verse 15, even the altar at Bethel, the high place made by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who had caused Israel to sin, even that altar and high place he demolished. He burned the high place and ground it to powder and burned the Asherah pole also. Then Josiah looked around, and when he saw the tombs that were there on the hillside, he had the bones removed from them and placed on the altar to defile it in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by the man of God who foretold these things. The king asked, What is that tombstone I see? The people of the city said it marks the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and pronounced against the altar of Bethel the very things you have done to it. Leave it alone, he said. Don't let anyone disturb his bones. So they spared his bones and those of the prophet who had come from Samaria. What's being referred to there is something that happened way back in 1 Kings chapter 13. Just after Solomon died, the United Kingdom of Israel had split in two, and Jeroboam became the first king of the north. He didn't want his people going south to worship in Jerusalem, in case they liked it better down there. So he started his own religion with two golden calves at Bethel and Dan. And just as Jeroboam was congratulating himself on his great idea, God sent a prophet from Judah... And he prophesied not only that these altars would be desecrated in the future, he even included in his prophecy the name of the king who would do it, a son named Josiah from the house of David. Then another prophet got involved and things got a bit strange. But we don't need to get tangled up in the details of that. You can read it in 1 Kings 13. The main point here is that Josiah is reaching far and wide and high in his war against the idols. He's even looking to reclaim the north for the Lord. Josiah is thinking big as he seeks to reform. And he's not content just to tear down false worship. He works to see it replaced with true God-honoring worship. If you look down to verse 21, the king gave this order to all the people, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Passover commemorated a foundational event in Israel's history. Back in the time of Moses, Pharaoh had an iron grip on the Israelites. They were his slave workforce, and he refused to let them go. The only way his iron grip was eventually broken was when the Lord struck down every firstborn son in Egypt, including Pharaoh's firstborn. But the Israelites were spared. God's destroying angel passed over them. And God said they were to commemorate that event each year with a special Passover meal. And here in our passage, verse 22 is not telling us no one before Josiah had ever done that. What we're being told is, Never before had anyone celebrated the Passover so thoroughly. 
with such careful attention to God's blueprint for the Passover. So Josiah is not just concerned to do away with false worship. He also wants to get true worship right in Judah. And if we look back over all Josiah has done, all of it is an outworking of verses 1 to 3. Josiah is working in all of this to see Judah reformed according to God's word. And so verse 24 says, Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists. In other words, people who try to communicate with the dead. That's something God's law is dead against. He got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law, written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Never before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength, in accordance with all the law of Moses. What a king! What a reformation! One writer says, Josiah demonstrates proper motivation, proper sensitivity to God's word, and proper obedience to the Lord. And then we say earlier, this is what God's people are about. Those who love God work to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. They work to call others back to God. Yes, Josiah is the gold standard example of that. But all God's people are to be committed to reformation. Reformation work is a good thing. It's the right thing to do for God's glory and the good of humanity. We dare not be complacent and self-satisfied while the world spirals on its way towards judgment. We can't be like that. But we also have to realize reformation is not enough. I said at the beginning we were going to look at verses 1 to 30. We haven't yet read the last five of those verses. So look what comes in verse 26. Right after the glowing report of Josiah's reformation. Verse 26 says, Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to arouse his anger. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel, and I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which I said, my name shall be there. As for the other events of Josiah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? While Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the river Euphrates to help the king of Assyria. King Josiah marched out to meet him in battle, but Necho faced him and killed him at Megiddo. Josiah's servants brought his body in a chariot from Megiddo to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. 
And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, and anointed him, and made him king in place of his father. Let's deal with the historical details first. We know the Assyrians are the superpower of this time. But we've also seen in recent weeks the Babylonians are the rising power. And while the writer of Kings has been focusing on events in Judah, things have been shaking up outside of Judah. The Babylonians have been putting the Assyrians under pressure. They've been taking Assyrian territory. And so Pharaoh Necho comes north from Egypt to help the Assyrians put down the Babylonians. Somehow Josiah gets mixed up in that situation and he ends up dead. In chapter 22, Huldah said he'd die before Judah was laid waste. She didn't say Josiah would die peacefully in his bed. And so this great king is gone. And even more shocking than that news is the news that his reformation has not turned aside God's wrath. Judgment is still coming on Judah. Verse 26 says, The Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger. How can that be? Hasn't the writer of Kings told us there's never been a king like King Josiah? Now, haven't we seen? There's never been a reformation like Josiah's reformation. So what was lacking? After all Josiah did, what was still missing? The answer is Josiah could call the people of Judah back to God's word. He could clean up the idols in Judah. He could lead Judah in biblical worship. But Josiah was powerless to clean up the hearts of the people. He could clean up the temple. He could clean up the hillsides. He could even clean up the behavior of the people. But he couldn't clean them up on the inside. And so the passage we'll look at next week tells us when Josiah was gone, Judah went right back to doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. In his lifetime, Josiah succeeded admirably in reforming Judah. But what Judah needed most was transformation. People needed to be changed from the inside out. And Josiah couldn't achieve that. No human leader could achieve it. And so Judah is still headed for judgment. Because for all of the outward reform, the people of Judah still have the same idolatrous, God-defying hearts they've always had. You can take away an idol worshiper's idols. You can even smash up an idol worshiper's idols. But none of that can change an idol worshiper's heart. The human heart is a little idol factory. If one idol gets smashed up, we'll soon find another false god to worship. 
So Josiah's reformation didn't fail because he was half-hearted about it. It failed because for all its importance, for all of its value, reformation cannot transform the human heart. Only God can do that. And in the Old Testament, God promised to do it. Years after what we've just been reading today, during the time of exile, God promised this through the prophet Ezekiel. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In other words, God says, I will transform you. I will clean you up from the inside out. I will make you new. That was God's Old Testament promise. And in the New Testament, Jesus referred to that promise when he spoke to Nicodemus. We read it earlier. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The way into God's kingdom is not through behavior modification. You have to be made new, Jesus said. And the New Testament goes on to tell us God has made this new birth available to us through Jesus' work on the cross. 2 Corinthians says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus took on himself not only our outward sins, but also the impurities of our hearts, including the unholy pride that makes us look down on others, that makes an idol out of our own good deeds, On the cross, Jesus took all that sin on himself. He was punished as the impure one. And he did it so you and I could be forgiven and transformed from the inside out. So the same chapter in Corinthians says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Now, I know as Christians, we look at those words, and isn't it true that we all wonder about that sometimes? Am I really any different from what I used to be? The Bible's answer is yes. You are different. We have an orientation to God that we never had before we came to Christ. Sin makes us miserable in a way it never did before we came to Christ. We hear God's voice in a way we didn't hear it before we came to Christ. As we read his word, we hear the voice of our Father in heaven. 
for all the great weakness and failure that still plagues us every day, for all of that, we do have new life in us. And one day that new life will finally blossom into an obviously transformed life. When Christ returns, we will be seen for what we really are. New creations in Christ. And so as the church of Jesus Christ, our message is not change your life and clean yourself up. If you thought that was the message of the church, then I'm sorry you've somehow got that impression. We need to be clearer. Because our message is come to Jesus. He'll change your life and clean you up. And he'll do it from the inside out. Come to Jesus and he will do what you are incapable of doing yourself. He will make you pure and holy and acceptable in God's sight. Maybe you can reform yourself to some degree. But you can never do enough to make your heart clean. Only Jesus can transform you. So you truly belong in the kingdom of God. And as Christians, as we seek to serve God today, let's remember, we work and serve not just so people can live slightly better lives, good and all as that is, but we have something infinitely greater to call people to. We know a Savior who can give them new life, not just a slight improvement on what they had before. Jesus can give new life where they're delivered from the judgment that's coming. Where they're already beginning to show the love for God that will keep growing in them for all of eternity. Reformation is not enough. But thank God we have a message of transformation. And if you're still trying to climb to heaven by yourself, that can only end one of two ways, either in sinful pride or in utter despair. And either way, you'll still be no closer to heaven. Come to Jesus. Put your trust in him and you will be born again. You will be finally pleasing to God because Jesus has made you new. We're going to respond now to God's word with a song that celebrates God's life-transforming power in Jesus. The song starts in amazement. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? But it's true, we can. Let's sing this together.